It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. No, I'm not forsaking the year of the Bible for the year of Charles Dickens. But really, this not only is something that Charles Dickens could have used to describe life in 18th century London and Paris, it's also something that is very descriptive of life in Israel and Judah in First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. There were good kings who were faithful to God in the covenant, and there were bad kings who were unfaithful, worshiping idols and really behaving more like Canaanites than Israelites. And so God's people sometimes had good times, and they enjoyed the blessings of God. Sometimes they had bad times, and they suffered the curse of judgment. And this cycle happened over and over and over again. Eventually, God had it with the rebelliousness. The people had completely forsaken God. They'd completely forsaken their covenant promise, the law of God. They rejected their role as God's holy, treasured possession, His kingdom of priests to represent Him to all the world. And so, true to God's Word, their behavior stirred up His wrath. Now, God was up front with His people about this from the very beginning. If you look back at Deuteronomy chapter 28, God spelled out, the blessings that Israel would enjoy if they were faithful to the covenant. And he described the horror that would befall them if they were unfaithful and disobedient. And then in Deuteronomy 30, verses 15 through 20, God drove the point home. He gave them a choice. He said, you have a choice between life and prosperity or between death and destruction. And he reminds them once again what each of those two entails. He goes into more detail about those things. And, and, and he tells them that if you want to live long in the land that I'm leading you to possess, if you want to enjoy a prosperous life there, then you've got to walk in my ways. You've got to keep my commands. But if instead they choose to turn to other gods and disobey the Lord, he says, I will strip you of your land and I will destroy you as a people. In fact, in Deuteronomy 30:19, it comes down to this. He says, "This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live." It's almost as if God's drawing up a legal contract or as if there's like a divine wedding. And in either case, you've got to have witnesses. And so God calls heaven and earth as His witnesses that He has clearly explained the terms of the covenant or He has clearly proclaimed His vows and Israel their vows to Him. That they understand what they're getting into when they enter in this relationship with God. And so heaven and earth will attest to the fact that Israel knew the conditions full well upon entering this partnership with God. And time and again throughout Israel's history, God repeats this warning when God made a covenant with David that his descendants would forever sit on the throne in Jerusalem and and from his line would come the Messiah. When God made that promise, God told David that his descendants would have to be faithful, that they'd have to walk in his ways, that they'd have to remain faithful to the covenant and obey his commands. As Ben read to us earlier in 1 Kings chapter 9, Solomon is told by God as the temple is dedicated that if, 
if Solomon and if his children and if the people will remain faithful to the covenant and be obedient to the Lord, then his name and his presence would dwell in that temple in their midst. But if they became unfaithful and turned to other gods, he said, I will withdraw my name. I will take my presence from this place. And this beautiful temple that you've made will become a heap of ruins and a thing of scorn and shame. And throughout First and Second Kings, we see this contentious relationship between God represented through His prophets and the kings. And you see this back and forth of prophets and kings, prophets and kings. And the kings, for the most part, were wicked. They were not good guys. And so the prophet's job was to remind them of God's covenant, to remind them of these consequences of idolatry and disobedience. And basically through the prophets, God was constantly calling the people back to covenant faithfulness so they could avoid His wrathful judgment. But the kings and the people did not listen to the warnings of the prophets. And so the northern kingdom of Israel was the worst, and so it was the first to fall. The Assyrian Empire totally wiped the northern tribes off the map. But Judah had sort of a 50-50 track record. They had half good kings, half bad kings. And the best kings, men like Ahaz and Hezekiah and Josiah, they brought great reforms to Judah. They got rid of the idols of their fathers. They restored the temple. They led the people or tried to lead the people back to faithfulness, keeping the Passover and observing the Sabbath once again. But it was a little too, it was too little too late. The people might have been willing to go through those motions, but their hearts still stayed far from God. And so we come to one of the greatest prophets in Judah, Isaiah. And that's what we're reading right now as we're reading through the Bible. We're in the midst of, of Isaiah. And God called Isaiah to confront Judah about their sinful and rebellious hearts, their disobedience, their unfaithfulness, and to call them to repentance so that God's final and greatest act of judgment wouldn't come. Exile from the land and the destruction of the temple. But of course we all know that's exactly what happened because they did not heed Isaiah's warnings. They did not repent and turn their hearts back to God. And so Isaiah chapter 1, if you'll go ahead and turn there, Isaiah chapter 1 uses the image of a courtroom. Remember back in Deuteronomy when God called heaven and earth to witness the covenant relationship with Israel, well, now God takes His people to court and He calls heaven and earth to come as material witnesses to hold Israel accountable to the fact that they have broken their end of the deal. And here in this chapter, Jerusalem is portrayed as an unfaithful bride. She was a once faithful city who has become unfaithful, but will someday be redeemed and made faithful again. So there's always hope. Whenever Isaiah brings a message of judgment... He always includes a message of hope. And Isaiah really does give us a tale of two cities here. The holy city of Zion versus the unholy city of sin. And as God laid out the choice so many generations before, God once more lays out this choice. What kind of city will Jerusalem be? And that choice is really laid out for you and I as well. What kind of person will I be? What kind of family will mine be? What kind of church will we be? So let's enter the heavenly courtroom and walk through Isaiah 1 together. And we'll be forced to make our choice, just as Jerusalem was forced to make hers. First, we see God sort of taking the people to court. Read with me in verse 1. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem 
that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows his master, the donkey his owner's manager. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. So God takes His people to court. He calls heaven and earth as witnesses against them. And He compares them to rebellious children. He says that they're dumber than a donkey. Because at least a donkey knows the voice of its master. At least it knows who it belongs to. But Israel no longer knows who it belongs to. They no longer recognize the voice of their father. Kind of reminds me what Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 27, when He said, My sheep listen to My voice. I know them and they follow Me. And He goes on to tell the Pharisees that, Hey, you don't don't recognize My voice. You don't follow Me because you're not My sheep. And so it is here with Judah and Jerusalem. They have wandered so far from God that they fail to recognize and follow His voice. They no longer act like they belong to the Good Shepherd. Jerusalem and all of Judah... The ones who were once the righteous city of Zion have now become the unholy city of sin. And Isaiah characterizes this unholy city as rebellious, but at the same time religious. And that seems like a you can't be. How can you be rebellious and religious at the same time? But they are. And let's look at that first of all. It was a rebellious city in verse 4. He says, "...all sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption." They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on Him. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured. Your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with oil. Your country is desolate. Your cities burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you. Laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a field of melons, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. You know, perhaps Jesus used this passage and some of the imagery that Isaiah uses when he thought of the story of the rebellious son and the forgiving father. You know, the parable that we call the parable of the prodigal son. Like the son in Jesus' story, Israel has turned its back on its father, on God, and has turned instead to a life of perversion and pleasure and idolatry and all manners of wickedness. And like the father in Jesus' story, God has not written off His children. He hopes to bring them back around to Himself one day. As any loving father would do, God is going to discipline His children in order to save them from themselves. And look at how Isaiah in verse 4 describes how rebellious this people had become. He calls them a sinful nation. Now that word sinful refers to more than just breaking a single solitary law, it means a broken relationship. Their relationship with God has been broken. They have broken the very heart of God. That word guilty in the Hebrew, it pictures something twisted, crooked, 
bent out of shape, especially under a heavy weight. It's as if Isaiah is saying that the weight of Israel's sin has left them warped. They are warped. They are bent out of shape by their sin. They no longer, it's like that aluminum foil, they no longer have the image of the people of God. They've been bent and twisted into something else. And when he calls them a brood of evil doers, that word basically means all-encompassing wickedness. Anything evil, anything wicked you could imagine, they do it. And then he calls them children given to corruption. Now that's a military term, that word corruption. It refers to a destruction so complete that it can no longer sustain human life. You know, I think about that, that Moab bomb that we dropped, that mother of all bombs on that, on that ISIS hideout in Afghanistan. The idea was to render those tunnels so destroyed that they couldn't be used again. And sometimes that happens in war. You have to destroy a city so completely that nobody can live there anymore. And that's how they've become. They've become so twisted by sin that human life can no longer flourish in their midst. Rather than having abundant life, they're the opposite of that. They are full of corruption and death. How God's people have totally forsaken and spurned their Lord. Yet they're unaware of it. They think they're okay. They think they're still the people of God. They've deceived themselves to the severity of their sin and they can't even admit to themselves the devastation these recent attacks by Assyria have left them. If you read back and remember in 2 Kings, when Hezekiah was king in Judah, Assyria came in and swept away the northern tribes and took them away. But then Assyria came to Judah and laid waste to their cities, burned their fields, burned all their fortified cities, laid siege to Jerusalem. And Isaiah here is confronting Judah with the truth of their condition. And he does it by asking a series of rhetorical questions to help them see just how battered and bruised, just how badly beaten they've been by the Assyrians. You see, God was using Assyria as his rod of discipline. And so they were capturing and destroying the cities and fields of Judah, stripping the nation of its food supply. And here God's people are battered and bruised from head, from head to foot. But they're not bandaged. Their wounds haven't been dressed. They've not been soothed with oil because they refuse to even acknowledge the wounds, much less come to God for healing. Jerusalem here is called the daughter Zion. She is now a homeless daughter. She's living out her days in the watchman's tower overlooking the devastated vineyards and fields of Judah. She alone is left and her days are numbered. But in His grace, in His mercy, God has left a remnant. He's left a few survivors so that they're not utterly destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah were. The irony is that while they have become this rebellious city that needs this kind of punishment... The city of sin and perversion and depravity and corruption and, 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 and wickedness. They're also a religious city. Look at verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing me meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. 
New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your evil assemblies, your new moon festivals, your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Now, can you imagine with me Isaiah standing maybe on the Day of Atonement or one of these other sacred feast days? You've got throngs of people coming to Jerusalem, bringing herds of animals for sacrifice. And Isaiah stands there and he, first of all, calls them all Sodom and Gomorrah, which is, you know, a a pretty harsh thing to say. And then he says, why are you doing this? Why are you bringing all these sacrifices? And the people answer, well, we've always done this. Moses told us to do this. That's why we do it. And Isaiah answers, God is up to here with it. God is full of it. God is sick of it. He doesn't want this anymore. And so Isaiah offers them something new. Instead of offerings and sacrifices and festivals and prayers, get your priorities straight. God was calling them to true repentance by being just and righteous, not through empty religious ritual. See, they thought that going to the temple to worship and bring their sacrifice, they thought that was enough. They thought that's all really God cared about, all God wanted. It's a good thing people today don't feel that way, right? I mean, nobody ever just goes to church on Easter Sunday thinking that somehow that makes God happy, right? I mean, certainly no one in this room ever thinks if I just go to church and I give my tithes and offerings, God doesn't really care how I live Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, right? But people do think that, don't they? See, gifts cannot replace your personal actions. Rituals do not equate righteousness. Sacrifice is no substitute for service. Justice must be given equally to all people before God is going to care about your worship. Acts of worship should be a response to God's gracious gift, not some sort of an attempt to secure it. And specifically, God calls them out on their new moon festivals. Now, the new moon festival was the day set aside each month to bring burnt offerings to the Lord. And basically, by the time of Isaiah, it had become a national holiday. Everybody took off work. You got together. You had your food. You got to go into Jerusalem and offer up your burnt offering. It was kind of like the way we treat Memorial Day or Labor Day. It's a good excuse to take off work, get together and grill out, maybe go to the lake. But really, it has no other meaning for us than that, right? How many people in this country really take the time on Memorial Day to remember those who gave their lives in service to this country? How many people, how many of you on Labor Day take a few moments to sit and reflect on the value of good hard work? No. You're glad to take a day off work, those of you that can. And so that's the way it was for the New Moon Festivals. They had lost their meaning. The Sabbath was supposed to be a day to rest and remember that God was the Creator and Redeemer. It was a day of worship, but it had become regarded as an unnecessary restriction on economic opportunity. Again, it's a good thing nobody ever feels that way today, right? Nobody today ever thinks that taking a day off to rest and not work, man, that's so out of touch and antiquated. 
So I'm just going to go to work anyway. Convocations. Now, convocations were officially held sacred assemblies for the community to gather together, and it especially happened around the annual festivals. And originally it was meant to be a gathering to worship, a sacred assembly for confession and prayer and repentance of your sin. But once again, it had lost all that meaning for the people of Judah. See, these were central acts to, Isaiah, to, to Israel's worship, but Isaiah condemns them. He tells the people to stop doing them. That'd be like me coming in here and saying, stop giving your tithes and offerings. I'm never going to say that, by the way. I just want to let you know. You know, stop coming to church. Stop being baptized. Stop partaking of the Lord's Supper. Just stop having a quiet time. Stop reading your Bible. Isaiah was telling them to stop doing the things central to what it meant to be a follower of God. And he wanted them to stop doing them until they could once again become a people of justice and righteousness. Even their prayers were detestable to God. And here's the great truth for us to remember from this. Repentance is better than religion. Repentance is better than religion. In verse 16 and 17, he says, Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. And defend the cause of the fatherless and the widow. Now this echoes the work of priests. Remember the priests, when they were going to go into the temple or the tabernacle, they had to have a ritual washing. They had to wash their hands. They had to rid themselves of all impurity. You might, those of you who were at the Seder meal, remember we take the little oyster cracker and we collect it up into the bag and we rid the room. We take it outside. We rid ourselves of the leaven. There was all this ritual, getting rid of the impurity and washing your hands. But Isaiah is saying that ritualistic washing to remove physical impurities is not enough. They must wash their hearts and their minds. They must change their attitudes and their practices. They've got to remove the evil from their midst, stop doing what is wrong, start doing what is right, seek justice, help the downtrodden, and fight for the weakest of society, the fatherless and the widowed. That's what God demanded of them. You see, God is far more concerned with how we live our lives day to day than how we perform on special days. And if you're not living for Jesus Christ tomorrow, God's not really impressed with the fact that you were here on Sunday. You can't impress God by coming to church by giving your tithes and offerings, by getting wet in a baptistry, by drinking some juice and eating some bread. If you aren't living every day like a follower of Jesus, God could care less. Coming to church for worship and Bible study, being baptized, giving, don't get me wrong, they're great things. Do those things. But also, rid yourself of sinful behavior. Stop doing what you know is wrong. Start doing what you know is right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widowed. Because God longs to forgive. God offers redemption. He gives His people a choice. Obey and be cleansed of your sin or rebel and be destroyed. Look with me at verse 18. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best from the land. 
But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Rather than throw the book at His people, God, the righteous judge, gives them a choice. God made the case against Judah. It's obvious. The evidence is there. They are guilty. But God's heart isn't to punish them, but to give them a fresh start, to give them a new beginning. And Israel can choose to turn from their sin and live in faithful obedience to God and experience His blessings once more, or they can continue to sin in rebellion and be utterly destroyed. Now, a reasonable, reasonable person would choose the first, wouldn't they? Repent, be cleansed of your sin. But in order for that to happen, you have to be willing to obey God's commands. Then God will restore the desolate land so it can be fruitful once more. But if they resist and keep on rebelling, then cleansing would be impossible. And rather than Israel consuming the fruit of the land, Israel themselves would be consumed by the sword. This was God's final offer. This merciful call, come, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white as snow. Take it or leave it. That's the deal. And so we come to the next part of the passage here where the two cities are compared. Jerusalem had been a faithful city, God's devoted bride, but now it had become like a harlot, prostituting herself to every foreign god and worthless idol that came along. Look in verse 21. See how the faithful city has become a harlot. She was once full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. See, the holy city of Zion was a faithful city. That word faithful means strong and enduring. It means loyal and believing. Faithfulness is the basic demand of the Old Testament prophets to be faithful in worshiping and serving the Lord, to be faithful to the covenant promise because God is faithful to us. God always keeps His word. And they must do the same if they want to remain the holy city of God. Faithful. Secondly, they were just. The holy city was just city. Now, justice creates and encourages equal rights and peace. We think of justice as being, you know, justice is blind and you're, you're innocent until proven guilty and, and that there's fair judgment for everybody. But it goes beyond that. Every personal decision, every act of assistance to someone in need is included in God's sense of justice. And we can't shrink that responsibility. We can't say justice. Man, that's such a huge concept. That's above my pay grade. We can't just leave justice up to the courts and the government. God holds each and every person responsible for being just. Every decision that you and I make should lead to justice and wholeness, to shalom in some part of society. So what career you follow... And how you carry out your work is a matter of justice. What you spend your money on. How well you take care of creation and the poor and your neighbors. The things you do online. The things that you say and do. They are all matters of justice and God will hold us accountable. And thirdly, the, the holy city of Zion is a righteous city. Now, this is a relationship term referring to the condition where you are in a right relationship with someone, where all things are right with the world. Righteousness is the world order that stands true to God's character and purpose. And it includes a commitment to work for the good 
of all people. It's the opposite of that earlier term, corruption, where something is so devastated, it's so corrupt, that life cannot flourish anymore. Righteousness is the opposite of that. It creates an atmosphere where humanity flourishes, where the image of God and other people can really shine through. And God condemns Jerusalem because she is no longer that kind of city. She's no longer qualified to be God's bride. She's gone the complete opposite direction so that murder reigns rather than justice and righteousness. She becomes the unholy city of sin. Look at verses 22 through 23. Your silver has become dross. Your choice wine is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, companions of thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. So in the unholy city of sin, nothing is pure. God's good gifts, the signs of His blessing have become impure. They've become diluted. And isn't that what sin does? Sin takes what God has created as good and exchanges it for a weak substitute. It's as if God has given you this nice porterhouse steak or He's given you filet mignon and lobster tail, but you'd rather have the reconstituted hamburger patty. You know, that's... Rather than have a really nice sit-down meal at one of the nice restaurants in Augusta, you just say, I just will settle for McDonald's. That's what we do. We take what God offers us that is good... He offers us real intimacy in marriage, but we substitute it for a one-night stand. We exchange truth for lies. We exchange lasting joy for the temporary pleasure of trinkets. And that's what the city of sin is like. Its leaders are selfish thieves who value bribes over belief, who pervert justice for their own selfish gain. People's needs are being ignored, especially the fatherless and the widow, those people that God provides the greatest protection for in the law. They are far from being a people after God's own heart. And so in verse 24, we see God's verdict and sentence. He says, Therefore, the Lord, the Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel declares, I will get relief from my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. Now, Isaiah here uses some language. Uh, he, he talks about the mighty one of Israel, the mighty one of Jacob. This is a term that's connected to God's military might. It was the term used as God would pr- proceed ahead of the army through the Ark of the Covenant to bring victory to Israel. And then that next phrase, the mighty one of Israel, the mighty one of Jacob. Again, this was designed to remind the people that it was God's power and might, not their own, that brought all their victory and successes. The battle belongs to the Lord. He is the reason that Israel exists in the first place. And this almighty God cannot ignore their behavior anymore. He has moved to sorrowful anger. Now, imagine Isaiah proclaiming this to all of Jerusalem, and he comes to that verse 24, I will get relief from my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. And Isaiah just kind of gives a nice pregnant pause right there. And imagine Jerusalem going... Yeah, that's right. God's going to seek revenge on the Assyrians. Yeah, God's going to get His victory. That's awesome. But then Isaiah continues. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. I will restore your judges as in days of old, your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you will be called the city of righteousness 
the faithful city. They are so surprised to hear Isaiah's words. The enemy of God isn't Assyria. Assyria is God's tool of discipline. The enemy of God is Israel. It's them. It's Jerusalem herself. The armies of God aren't marching out for Jerusalem, but against Jerusalem. But God isn't bringing His armies against them out of hate out of some desire to destroy them. God hasn't reneged on His promise. He's not taken back His love from them. This is an act of love. This is an act of discipline. This is an act by which God hopes to purge Israel of its sin, to redeem her and make her once again a faithful city. God isn't throwing Israel into the garbage heap or the incinerator. He's putting her in the recycle bin. Now, do you know how recycling works, sort of the process of recycling? Let's take paper, for example. The paper is cut, it's shredded, it's pulverized, it's washed to get all the inks and the dyes out of it, and basically it comes out the other side, it's, it's been reduced to pulp again. And then it's reconstituted into paper, into something that can be once again useful, into something new. That's what God is doing with Israel. He's going to cut them down. He's going to shred them of their land, their temple, their identity. He's going to wash them clean and reduce them to a remnant through which He can reconstitute them as His faithful people once again. God's beloved city will be redeemed. And so we finish beginning in verse 27. Zion will be redeemed with justice. Her penitent ones with righteousness but rebels and sinners will be both broken and those who forsake the Lord will perish. You will be ashamed because of the sacred oaks in which you have delighted. That, that's, that's referring to Baal worship. And you will be disgraced because of the gardens that you have chosen. God's not anti-gardening. These are references to the, the pagan religions that they were worshiping. You will be like a live oak. You will be like an oak with fading leaves, like a garden without water. The mighty man will become tender and his work a spark. Both will burn together. And no one to quench the fire. God's beloved city will be redeemed, but only after He rids them of the rebellious people who refuse to turn to Him. God's holy city needed redeeming, but it's only going to happen through two things. Justice and righteousness. See, justice. Justice is what redemption is all about because justice is about freedom, right? It's about liberty. And so, to be redeemed means that you've been enslaved. You've been captured and taken away. And someone has to come in and pay the price to set you free. And through justice, God is going to set His people free so that they can turn, they can have penitent hearts, they can turn from their sin, and they can become the righteousness of God. There is hope for those who genuinely repent and turn to God. Not by seeking refuge in empty religious ritual. Not by turning to other gods. But by turning to God. And my question for you today is in which city do you live? Are you in the holy city of Zion? Are you living lives of justice and righteousness and faithfulness as you follow Jesus Christ? Are you experiencing the blessings of being a child of God? Or do you live in the unholy city of sin? Have you exchanged the good gifts of God for the passing pleasures of this world? Are you putting your faith in empty religious rituals rather than a real relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ? Are you more passionately pursuing justice or are you more concerned with selfishly fulfilling your own indulgences? 
God has given you a choice today. Will you come as we stand to sing here in just a moment and reason with Him? Will you come and bring your sins to Him and let Him wash them clean? Will you turn to your Father and pursue His kingdom ways? Or will you stubbornly follow your own path that will ultimately lead to destruction? The choice is yours. Which city will you live in today? Let's stand and let's sing. You come as God leads you.